I take it you can hear me clearly, right? Cape Town, uh, do we, uh, can you hear me clearly? Okay. All right, great. All right, I think uh, in the interest of time, let's, let's begin the session. Um, so I'd like to thank you all for coming to the first alternative session for 2019, right? Uh, and as I've mentioned uh, before, uh, I'm an evangelist for that. Um, the Alternative Investments Committee is a committee that seeks to expand the reach of the actuarial profession beyond the more traditional areas um, and towards alternative asset classes like hedge funds, private equity, and infrastructure, with a keen focus on institutional investors. So this session in particular will look at um, uh, infrastructure investing, right? Now, the definition of infrastructure investing can be quite broad, um, and it covers sectors such as energy, healthcare, water and sanitation, transportation, telecoms, education and housing. Uh, and investing into an ESCOM bond, for example, would be classified as investment into infrastructure, uh, as well as investing into a listed, uh, uh, listed equity of an infrastructure-focused company. But for the purposes of this discussion, it helps to narrow down the definition towards uh, looking at less liquid or unlisted um, in infrastructure investments, mainly on the debt side, um, as well as, so it, which necessarily includes uh, project finance, as well as, um, sorry, uh, SPV-based financing into infrastructure assets or projects, right? So it's also important to note that um, we'll be looking at this from the context of a pension fund as an institutional investor, right? Some of the points to be discussed can apply to a life insurer, but Regulations such as SAM or Solvency 2 can limit infra, uh, infrastructure investment done by life insurers or general insurers as well. Um, although a lot of the points do carry across, and I think that in and of itself could form a separate topic of discussion, um, but we will not touch on that uh, in much detail today. Right, so infrastructure investment and financing, if implemented correctly, can have benefits such as increased portfolio diversification, uh, explicit inflation linkage um, towards inflation-linked liabilities, as well as the broader benefits uh, associated with uh, national infrastructure development, such as uh, economic growth and job creation. Um, pension funds, as you know, house large pools of uh, institutional money, uh, mainly current and future pensioners' uh, savings. And if this is done correctly, this can provide an increase in the capital available to finance infrastructure projects and relieve government uh, financing deficits, among other benefits. Now, infrastructure obviously can be a very political asset class. In fact, it is. Um, and some of the points that we'll touch on today uh, will we'll sort of deal with that. But it's important to, notice, uh, to note that this will be a holistic discussion. And that's not necessarily the central focus of today's uh, discussion as well. So to facilitate the discussion, I'd like to thank uh, our two guest speakers for coming and I'll introduce them shortly. But in terms of the format, the first hour roughly will be a Q&A uh, with the speakers, and then the last 30 minutes roughly will then be open to uh, questions from uh, both Joburg and Cape Town, uh, from, from all of you. So I'd like to introduce the Deputy Chief Investment Officer of the ESCOM Pension Fund. His name is Patu Tsetso, uh, Maboko. He is, as I mentioned, the current deputy CIO. Uh, he was formerly at Chanduka and worked as a trans actor uh, for M&As, uh, mergers and acquisitions. And prior to that, he'd worked at both QED actuaries as an actuarial analyst, as well as fifth quadrant actuaries. Uh, I'm not sure if some of you here are um, uh, at any of those companies, but uh, you have a former employee up in, up in front. 
So he's graduated with a BSc in Actuarial Science from Wits University. He's a CFA charter holder, as well as uh, an MBA holder from INSEAD uh, University. Uh, so I'd like to just uh, call Patu up to the front. And then our second speaker is Kulufelo Molewa. So he's the founder and managing partner of InfraSec uh, Securities, Africa Infrastructure Securities. Together with his team, he has successfully managed infrastructure assets both here and in South Africa as well as elsewhere on the African continent. Prior to InfraSec, he was a partner and shareholder at Inspired Evolution, which manages the Evolution 1 Fund and Evolution 2 Fund, a private equity fund with a focus on infrastructure assets. So Kulufela has 17 years uh, working experiences both at debt and private equity financier, uh, gained at RMB, uh, Safika Holdings, as well as Inspired Evolution uh, Advisors. He also, has, uh, he also served as a non-executive director to, various, uh, to a variety of listed and non-listed companies, including the Kelly Group, uh, CIFA, as well as, uh, and he currently serves as chairman of the Children's Radio Foundation, a US-based NGO. He also serves on the board of both, uh, sorry, he also serves um, on the Audit and Risk Committee, the Personnel and the Investment Committee of Business Partners, a leading African-based SME equity financier that also manages a suite of USD funds focused on African countries other than South Africa. Kulufela also serves on the Selection Committee for the Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford University, and he holds an LLB and a, finance, uh, a Master's in Finance as well. So I'd like to welcome you to the front. So we had initially uh, invited two other speakers. Unfortunately, many of you, you would know Michael Tichareva. He's an actuary and a specialist in infrastructure financing. Uh, but unfortunately, he's uh, stuck in Zimbabwe at the moment. Uh, he's uh, awaiting his passport because he's due to, to travel effectively, so he won't be able to make it. As well as a government representative, a spokesperson on economic infrastructure investment, uh, who unfortunately has just told me she won't be able to make it at the moment. But however, some of the, a lot of the points that are raised in this uh, session will, will be taken forward uh, as well and discussed in further sessions. So thank you to our guests for coming. And uh, I'll kick it off uh, with uh, the uh, pension fund space in terms of uh, from the EPPF space. So I think to kick the entire discussion off, um, I'd like to find out at a high level, do you feel that local pension funds see value in infrastructure investment from an overall risk and return perspective? Uh, thank you, Malizol. Uh, firstly, um, thanks a lot for the invitation. Uh, many, many years ago, I, I used to be an actuarial student, so very happy to be back here engaging with the actuarial society. I gave up along the way, unfortunately, so I'm not, unlike some of you, I'm not an actuary but I somehow found my way back to a pension fund. So, to, to your question, um, we, see, we see a lot of value, plenty of value. Um, first of all, we have, as you would know, maybe 30,000 30, uh, pensioners who are probably gonna be alive next 20 or 30 years. They expect to, to a certain pension, they expect that pension to, pension to, be, to, be, to be inflation beating, they expect, um, they expect uh, preservation of their capital. It helps when you can invest in asset classes like infrastructure, which are, you know, which are gonna give you long dated uh, cash flows, quite stable, certainly versus uh, compared to, let's say, listed equities, which tend to go up and down. So they tend to be a lot more predictable. Uh, we find a lot of value in that. It, it helps a lot with, with, with planning, 
is uh, we find in general it gives very good return. All right, thanks. So moving on to Kulufelo, um, what are some of the main challenges? Um, what have some of the main challenges been as far as institutional investment from a fund manager's perspective in the country to date? Um, th- yeah, thank you, and thank you for having me here. I think maybe just to preface it is that since we've been in the sector, or since at least I've been in the sector since 2009 with the first wave of renewable energy assets in South Africa, we, haven't, we hadn't raised local money up until two years ago. And that wasn't for a lack of trying or a lack of a track record or whatever. I just think that uh, the new asset class, there's a lot of newness associated with it. So you'd spend, I guess, you know, the first hour of, uh, or at least the first 55 minutes of a 60-minute meeting explaining what the asset class is, even to arguably very smart people. It just was new. Mm. So from a challenge perspective, it's really just been a lack of just knowing what the features, the economic and financial features of the asset class are. Um, but yeah, we've seen that change, I think, maybe over the last three years. Some money started to come off the sidelines, uh, but not nearly enough. You know, I think even where people see economic and financial value, there's all these sort of mandate restrictions around where pension funds in particular and other long-dated uh, uh, formats can invest within. You know, so some guys like it, but they can't go unlisted. Uh, and so forth and so on as well. You know? mm. um, so I, I think there's still a big scope, but we are definitely seeing uh, a, a change, a small change. Yeah. I mean, I would, to, to a certain extent, I would argue it's, more, it's less about the regulation. In other words, Regulation 28 limits and more about the understanding of the various decision makers or stakeholders that are involved in that process, really. And I think that's something that's sort of starting to change. Uh, I think we'll see more and more of that uh, as we go forward. So I think to follow up on that, can you talk about some of the main differences uh, in approach between a bank versus an institutional uh, fund manager in terms of investment and risk management? Um, Can you just elaborate a bit on that as well? Yeah, sure. So um, traditionally, the banks, as banks do, participated mainly at the debt level. And that was, if I use the renewable energy um, landscape as a proxy for a broader point, is that uh, the banks wouldn't touch anything related to equity. The returns were high for equity um, in the round one and round two and maybe even round three. But as we've subsequently understood the proposition as more secondary infra opportunities broadly within renewables and now what we're seeing growingly is, and what we what uh, we did quite a bit last year was PPPs as well, which I'll speak about later. We started to see the banks participate even at that equity level through some sort of mares um, or you know similar pref and or debentures, and it just shows you where the shift has has, has occurred. You know, in terms of assessment of risk for for the banks, the banks were finding it uh, you know competitive across the stream. As more money started getting off the sidelines, they would get um, competition from the likes of non-banking institutions like Future Growth and others who were providing both debt and equity. But they've smartened up, and uh, now the difference is that yeah, banks do fundamentally take a, a credit view, 
but you'll find them funding the equity slug on a non-recourse basis as well. And that, that, that was unheard of. Uh, from an investor's perspective, in local, locally, is that uh, th I think the biggest shift, if I can announce, describe it practically, is that investors have moved away from not touching any pre-revenue positions. So by pre-revenue, I guess I mean construction, um, where you've reached financial, what we define as financial close or feasibility. And we've definitely seen um, increased appetite where assets are under construction. That, that was very different from even four years ago, I'd say. Uh -huh. Okay, all right. Interesting points there. To follow up on that part two, I think, uh, look, most of the financing that has been to date, I think uh, you did touch on that a bit, has been in the debt space, right? Traditionally building up to, to where we are today. Uh, would you agree, though, with the sentiment that equity infrastructure financing in the unlisted space is a bit too risky for pension funds uh, in terms of their risk appetite at this stage? No. Um, in general, I don't think it is too risky. Uh, I think you could possibly make an argument for it being riskier than um, fixed income. But the question you want to answer before you decide on bonds or equity is, well, how long is your investment horizon, for example. If you have a 20 or 30 year, then it should be just fine. These things go up and down, but generally they recover. And over a five or 10 year period, they, they, they deliver decent returns. But if you're trying to get to put your money into uh, an investment and, and get it back quickly uh, without, um, so you don't want any problems. If, if you're gonna want it back in three years or four years, you want exactly the same amount, then maybe infrastructure is not the sort of asset class you want to look into, I think you'd be you'd be better off keeping your your, your, your cash in maybe money market instruments or maybe yeah. even bonds. Yeah. But in, in terms of risk adjusted returns, I I think equity is just fine. I think I think we we are more than happy with that. Okay. Over time, we see we see good value. All right. Okay. So, what can other major stakeholders besides pension funds, so in other words, government and the general private sector, do to uh, to improve the investment uh, sort of horizon for uh, pension funds into infrastructure? Um, so, so I think essentially there are two, two main points and, and, and I think they're both linked to probably governance. I, I think when you invest, um, investment is not a donation. You want your money back ultimately. So you want to know that it will be paid back. So upfront, you want that sold up. You want uh, you want that decided exactly how you'll be paid back. So I think we would probably know about a, a, a enormous infrastructure project that happened in this province that people are simply refusing to to pay for. You don't want things like that. And in case that happens, you need a guarantee that someone steps in and pays you back because if that doesn't happen. You have a big problem. Your pensioners are not going to be happy with you. So. Yeah. You, you tighten that up, no problem. Uh, two, it's just general governance. Um, it's, it, it's governance in the sense of uh, we've had a number of scandals recently, uh, but that, that cuts across all asset classes, I think. That's, that's not just infrastructure. Yeah. So the corruption, theft, um, things like that. So, 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 so you, you want to look at people that you're working with, your partner, and, and make sure that these are uh, people you can trust uh, because... If not, then there's a there's a good chance that you you lose out on your uh, you lose your investment. Mm. 
I think that speaks more towards the public sector, though. Unless if I'm uh, <laughs> no, so, I mean I think, <laughs> but I mean in terms of the the private sector holistically, I mean, yeah. are you is, is there anything that can be done there to to help facilitate you know the discussion at least or flows into the infrastructure space? Um, listen, I haven't come across any 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 big issues. Um, I, I think generally, uh, since I've been at the pension fund, we would have disagreements with the private sector usually around issues of transformation. I think that's, that's a major stumbling block. And it's not necessarily that people are openly and entirely against transformation. It's, it's the nature of transformation that we want versus what they are trying to, to give us. Uh, but as a pension fund, we find that very difficult because uh, anyone who's going to be doing any sort of business with the pension fund must em embrace transformation. Uh, in, in fact, if you're not level three, this, this, we can't do anything with you. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's a big one. Yeah. Okay. hundred percent. Uh, Kulufela, just coming back to you. I mean, as far as risk management, uh, at a practical underlying level, what are some of the biggest perceived, uh, I'll separate that from actual risks that, that, that tend to happen in the space that have played out in practice. I mean, uh, both in a general sense, as well as you could pick out a few specific examples. Yeah, the, the perceived risk. So a couple of years ago, we tried to, we had a portfolio that we um, had developed. It was operating well, and then we tried to sell it off to, uh, not all of it, uh, about half of it to the local market, being normal pension funds, and et cetera. And the... That was quite an instructive exercise for us because then um, you know you got a sense of what the market perceived to be risky. Mm. So the perceived risk always, I mean, ESCOM, if it's if it's energy related, um, even if it's not energy related, it's there's like regulatory um, risks that are attached to any large infrastructure project. So and usually they are sort of misstated. I guess if you're looking at it from the outside, you justify it to sort of uh, highlight them in the way that, that, they, that they have been. And another sort of perceived risk really goes to, and across sort of technology, so energy or otherwise, around construction risk or just getting these things to stream, you know, um, Energy is an easy example. So a lot of people would raise um, like Kusile and Midupi as examples around constructions, you know, ask you what happens if it runs over. But uh, a lot of infrastructure finance or funding is very project finance driven. You know? So uh, I think in the South African context, the tenants of that are not as established as they are maybe if we go outside of South Africa. And that really means it's very contract-driven, very ring-fenced. You can see the risks, not to say there isn't any risk, but you can, you, we try to upfront and identify the risk and therefore price the risk even before anybody spent money. But, you know, a lot of people would uh, balk at the idea of, say, three and a half billion wind farm, um, you know, construction risk, and uh, and that would probably kill the conversation even before it got out the starting blocks. You know, so I'd say maybe those two. Yeah. Okay. All right. 
Now, just coming back to uh, part two, um, would you say then, I think following up from the private sector uh, point, would you say that there's a potential room for misalignment of interest between uh, private sector fund managers, or just general stakeholders, but mainly private sector fund managers, as well as uh, the end client, which is a pension fund? For example, uh, is there a case for fees uh, being misaligned with, with the interest, best interest of the pensioners, or for example, short-termism by, by fund managers? Is that, is that an issue or consideration? In general, I'd say no. I, I would say um, if, if this gentleman to my right comes to the pension fund looking for capital, then he, he would have an idea of what we do and we have an idea of what he's trying to do. So if he's trying to do 20, 30-year projects and we're not trying to be in that, then that discussion doesn't go anywhere. Uh, but when it gets to a point where you're putting money into a fund, usually you've, you've taken care of those issues up front. So fees maybe sometimes, but that's always uh, a negotiation. So, so I wouldn't call that a uh, misalignment. Uh, I would say this, this uh, standard, generally, they know what to expect. They know what we can do. Um, but in general, no, I wouldn't say there's a, there's, there's a, there's a great deal of misalignment, uh, at least not what we've seen. I, I, I would say if, 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 as it stands, we're trying to do maybe infrastructure in South Africa and, and out there there's maybe only guys looking at international infrastructure, so maybe an issue. But actually, it's usually the, the other way around. Guys who want to do infrastructure locally when we're trying to diversify out of the country, that tends to be a challenge from time to time. It's, it's not as easy to find a local fund manager, South African fund manager who has good knowledge of, let's say, the overseas market and wants to do it. So I would say maybe a, that's, that's maybe one of the biggest problems we, we, we have. Okay. All right. And then is there, um, I mean, with a pension fund your size, I mean, obviously the only, the biggest pension fund other than the EPPF is the GEPF. Is there a bit of a focus towards ex-South uh, Af Africa versus South Africa? I mean, what's, what's the balance between the two in terms of priorities? Um, so I'll answer that in two ways. I think one is the Regulation 28 of the Pension, the, the pension Funds Act. That obviously limits what we can do. I think that's limited to, to a 30% you can invest offshore plus another 10%. So that's, that already gives you an idea of how much you can take overseas. So as, as a result, most of our focus is on South, South, South Africa. If, if, uh, if we zone in on infrastructure, what we have right now is, uh, is mostly South Africa. We have a very small allocation to, to overseas. I think if you look at our PE portfolio, it's roughly 35, 65 in favor of South Africa. And I realize this portfolio is probably only about 25%. Now, maybe 30, 35% rest of Africa and, and, and overseas. Sure. So it's mostly South Africa. Okay, 100%. Yeah. Look, I think we can't, we can't uh, have a discussion around infrastructure without touching on the hot topic of the day, which is prescribed assets. So uh, I'd like a comment, I guess, from, 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 uh, from uh, both of you, just on, at a high level, on what, you know, the potential impacts, etc. I mean, I think if you look at the majority of news flow around it, I think enough of the negatives are highlighted uh, across, you know, the country, et cetera. But are, are there any positives that can come out of it, for example? Or what are your sort of own individual uh, opinions or views on that? Should I start? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so, so you're not going to like my answer because I, I don't really have a view because the, the way I see it, there's, there's, there's no detail yet. So there was a discussion at an election rally. We, we, we don't really know exactly what that's going to entail. I, I would suggest that maybe we wait uh, and, and, and see exactly what it is that they're intending to do. Um, I, I do feel that guys in the, in the, in the investment industry are... Um, well, the ones that I've spoken to, there's, there's been a suggestion that it, it, it will be negative. But as, as I said, until we have all the detail about, is this going to be sector specific? Is this going to be specific to certain enterprises? Because it seems like people are just thinking, okay, prescribed assets, we're going to have to put in 100 billion into ESCO, but we don't know. So I, I don't have a view. I think that we shouldn't be on, on, on um, I, I understand we've had prescribed assets in this country long before I was born, I think, but I, 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 don't, I don't know. I doubt it's going to be exactly like that. So until we have a bit more on, on, on that topic, I think I'll, I'll sit on the fence. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> All right. Qualifel. Yeah, um, yeah not, not too dissimilar. There's nothing beyond the headlines. Yeah. And uh, you know, so if and I mean the only sort of intelligible thing I've seen was where somebody was arguing in a piece I read around the thin line between de government determining sort of strict asset allocation frameworks for, say, uh, GPF, and that being interpreted as a prescribed asset. Uh, and uh, I probably wouldn't have uh, a problem with the former. All right. Okay. Okay. Just so to move on from that point, I mean, can you give us an example, just generally speaking, of um, good infrastructure returns, risk return profiles have emerged, and contrast that with where sort of things go wrong? Are there any sort of key themes or key drivers between the two in, the, in a general sense in the local market? Yeah. So the local market, I mean, the opportunity set isn't massive beyond the renewable energy space now, there's, there's an emerging, on sort of a narrow so-called economic infrastructure definition. There is um, quite a lot of stuff happening at local government level, which is your more traditional PPPs, same rationale with um, government providing the backstop, whether it's for health and so on, and we've seen one or two of those. And the Challenge, I think, is maybe it's a theme in what I've been saying. It's really just building um, awareness, and it's more than awareness because the data set also simply isn't uh, isn't there for anybody to be too definitive about what this thing looks like. You know, so we've had at best, um, I think, five or six years trading for a lot of the larger energy-related assets in in the country. And you know, you always, I think you look at it like, uh, like one would look at a long dated bond curve or, or whatever. And so far the profile of those curves has been convex, you know, so it's re-rated. But you could argue that there was severe mispricing in the beginning. Um, we used to get uh, equity returns in excess of 30% net for, e for equity, which is, I mean, on a risk adjusted basis, I don't think that we'll ever see that again. So. Just as a quick aside, so a lot of the 
um, contracts, for instance, that the public enterprises minister was saying maybe we should renegotiate will probably fall in that, uh, in that category. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's uh, the definition is, is, is crystallizing, um, both from what, what it means uh, on a risk basis and the impact that it has on a portfolio, and obviously also on an expected return. As I said, we're starting to build up sort of a financial narrative, even with the five or six years that we've got. Uh, so kind okay. of no, just, just to follow on, on from that point, do you think that the there's obviously talk of ESCOM unbundling into three mm -hmm. separate entities as well as you know, almost complete privatization? Do you think that's going to affect the IPP programs sort of going forward from this point? Yeah, it, it will, and not necessarily in a negative way. I personally can't see these things being renegotiated in sort of the way that the headlines described, um, simply because we're speaking billions and there'd be systemic risk, you know, because the banks, or pension funds, etc. And uh, I mean, I don't know, but I I think it would serve the the asset class if, at least from an energy perspective, if you had a single buying entity in the market mm. and which created space for more IPPs, therefore. So ESCOM is not buying, generating, per se. And if I read the news reports correctly, that's you'll have transmission, distribution, and generation. Um, the unbundling to be credit neutral will probably have to have some sort of public, I mean, private sector money. And I think the, <clears throat> the gap there is definitely on the IPP side, I mean, amongst other players. An IPP across the board, whether in transmission or, or so on, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, I think, look, as I mentioned, uh, infrastructure is quite broad. Energy seems to take up the bulk of the, the focus in terms of assets or investment uh, capability within the local market. Uh, and I think there's a whole range uh, in terms of what can be done from uh, strategic asset allocation, if we're looking from a pension fund uh, perspective, to the actual risk management and management of projects, as well as the underlying sort of uh, fund management in between. But at a high level, uh, part two, I'll start with you. Uh, do you feel that there's a case for more actuarial skills, uh, sort of actuarial skills uh, being applied to the space? Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I think um, I'm obviously slightly biased having come from, from the profession, even though I never qualified. But uh, actuaries are, are very impressive people in general. I think there's a, there's, there's a need for actual skills, uh, specifically around valuation, forecasting, and things like that. I, I do think, though, that for actual people who are hoping to get into, into those sort of industries, so just to share my experiences, I, I found it very difficult to transition from actual to investments, uh, primarily because people don't understand what actuaries do. I, I think maybe things have changed. It's been 10 years since I, since I made that switch. Uh, but I constantly had to explain exactly what actuarial science is and, and what it is I could offer because, uh, believe it or not, there are people out there who think you guys are just mathematicians and there's nothing wrong with being a mathematician, but they think that's all you can do. So when, when you do look into opportunities in that sector, you, you need to spend a bit more time educating 
educating people on the other side and explaining to them exactly what it is you can do. But I think, uh, given given the skills you pick up in in actuarial science, I think you'd be just fine and quite quite useful. Okay, Kulufelo, do you have any uh, sort of comments to add on that? I know you don't, you know, have the actuarial background. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I think you're involved in the direct fund management. No, so, sure. I think yeah. yeah. I mean, from a pricing um, and valuation perspective, the uh, there's uh, we we've employed. Uh, team of actuaries out of Cape Town for valuation because for, for valuation checks often um, because I mean the nature of it is that they often use conditional probabilities and so stuff that's above some of our own pay grade so there's definitely <laughs> space for that type of specialization yeah okay all right I think uh, I'm gonna open the floor up to questions uh, at this stage The one thing about actuaries, though, is they tend to be a bit quiet, so it's you know, <laughs> the one thing to note when employing them. Okay, we've got a question at the back. All right, a question for Kola Fellow, please. Uh, the, the one problem we have with infrastructure developments, and similar, are in fact the valuation in the initial years. So you get a pension fund, defined contribution, where people get a value placed on units per month. And they make a big investment in infrastructure, renewable energy, for example, but you're not quite sure, or if you can explain to me, how do you actually place a value on it in the first few years to make sure that the members are properly, pro pro properly compensated? For example, for example, with the J-curve. So one of the problems with pension funds investing in infrastructure is that unknown. You want to make sure your members are treated fairly. Can you give us a bit more detail about how you actually value a long-term project with so much uncertainty and cash flows many years down the road? Mm. Yeah, so we've tried and thought of all kinds of techniques to, to that point. And we've just settled on, I guess, the simplest, which is an NPV calc. And, and it's, I say simplest because it's probably the most honest in that sense, because you know, it's cash out, cash in, and you aggregate them. And we actually then, I mean, some guys would apply uh, MPV calc with a similar discount rate throughout the life, but we break it up into a pre-construction MPV calc, because uh, there's still some integrity in doing an MPV calc pre-revenue. Um, and then we apply certain metrics which account for the risk there, the timing risk, um, or the delay risk for that, for that matter. And then we readjust it once it reaches, um, I guess, what's described as COD, at, at, uh, but even at commissioning, commissioning operating day. But even that has got very different um, variations because you have COD and then you've got COD, then you've got final COD. So we treat each period of COD commissioning and testing very differently as well until the final, final outcome. And then we have a final valuation iteration of 12 months post final COD cash flows as well. Uh, but all of it is, is, a, is an NPV calc. And where the biggest variable change is usually the inputs in the, in the discount ratio. And I, I think that's probably as uh, complex as we get it, Joe. 
Yeah, I think that tends to be a, a general issue for unlisted alternatives, especially on the DC fund space, because liquidity mm. obviously is extremely important there, as well as pricing. Um, yeah, okay. Is there any other question at this stage? Good afternoon, gentlemen. So, um, I mean, to your point, Kurufelo, about you know, spending 55 minutes of an hour explaining that. I mean, that is, I find that strange because infrastructure has obviously been in the investment forum for very many years in different forms. I mean, we had Inca and, you know, the likes of, you know, municipal finance, which is effectively infrastructure for many years, and people have invested in that. So I think, if anything, it's more the conservativeness of our investment committees in general. You know, and other issues as mentioned at the back, that the industry hasn't been creative enough to come up with, with ways of mitigating some of those risks for pensioners or other institutional investors. I think that's more the problem rather than an understanding or, a, or an appreciation of, of infrastructure investing. But what I really wanted to find out from you, my real question was about, you know, we talk about infrastructure, but actually what we're talking about is renewable energy. And this is all that it, it seems infrastructure is at the moment. I mean, are there any other things besides that which are, which are topical, which are worth looking at, which are interesting, and, you know, which if you had, you know, your, your, your one-minute elevator pitch, you'd, mm. you know, you'd, you'd push pretty hard. Yeah, no, definitely. So, I mean, the usual. So, telecoms shows... Some telecoms assets show a real asset profile, definitely, in local space. And we've seen, okay, we've seen one, but it shows very similar long-term or long-dated cash flows. And it's got a history, which is great. Um, but the big thing that, uh, as I said, last year that we went into to a bigger was the PPPs, which was completely outside of renewable energy, and it was refreshing. Um, I don't know if anybody has from RMB, but RMB has dedicated quite a lot of energy into that PPP space as well, and with good reason. Long lead times. I mean, some of them take uh, eight years to sort of come on stream, but we see in healthcare, uh, we see water reticulation, and all within the South African space where you've got a 15 year offtake essentially with an explicit, explicit. Uh, government underwrite, you know, and, and we like that. Many years ago, it's not really in front, we did low-cost housing with, uh, with Investec, and where we co-funded uh, in the Marikana area, um, housing, you know, where we took a 15-year position there. Um, but slightly different because it was against uh, a mining balance sheet, but same sort of principle, essentially. Yeah. I think the opportunity set is growing, and anybody who is in the space would do best to diversify outside of renewable energies. And not because renewable, the prognosis there is bad, but um, the, the opportunities are, are wider outside of that, I think. Yeah, I think if I could just add to that, I think if you look into commercial real estate and toll roads, there's uh, some good opportunities there I've seen recently. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a wider scope than just renewable energy. Yeah, so just, and I mean, internationally, the largest uh, infra funds have got a real estate yeah. component to it, which is, uh, I mean, we've you know, started thinking about that more seriously now. 
Um, but you know, it's a shift for people. So you can, I can show you the profile of the cash flows. And I can go further than that. I can say to you, look, on a risk-adjusted basis, you're better placed in this infra pool than you are in the real estate pool, especially after last year, for instance. Mm-hmm. And, but the shift still doesn't always occur. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's feelings, I don't know. Does that answer the question more or less? Okay. Any other questions? To either of the, the two panelists, uh, or, or, or which one wants to answer, but um, isn't one of the biggest um, issues to open up this space to the smaller pension funds? Because I think, you know, traditionally it's been a large um, deal size potentially to participate in a lot of these infrastructure deals, which is why I think banks and then perhaps life companies to, to some extent participated to date, but not many funds perhaps, maybe the ESCOM fund is, is again a very large institutional investor. Um, and also then the, you know, just if you talk about the traditional project finance type of deal, there's a lot of legal work, a lot of um, project modeling and things, which, which is quite complex. And uh, I was hoping, you know, especially to have the, the government representative here to understand from the new infrastructure fund proposed, you know, what um, opportunities might be available. But um, isn't it uh, about creating a, a platform or a fund or, a, or, or some sort of a vehicle where you can have a lot more diversification across projects so that smaller funds can participate and also whatever platform that is can help take care of some of these complexities around you know, the legal work and, and a lot of the things that the typical institutional investor might not have access to. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that, is, that is correct. Um, historic, historically, it's, it's mostly been the, the, the big pension funds that can write big checks but there, there are ways of getting into, into this, uh, infrastructure projects. For example, you're not always needing to, to write a one billion rand check and buy, and buy an asset. You could put money into funds, like the sort of fund he has. Uh, but in addition to that, I see more and more products coming up that do exactly that. So you pull 10 or 20 small pension funds and, and you maybe come up with 2 billion rand, 2 to 10 billion rand, and you buy a few assets. Um, so I think that allows also, or that it, it helps the pension, the smaller pension funds avoid the, the issue of, well, they don't really understand what's going on. So they have someone who's done this before, someone who makes the decisions on their behalf. So I would, I would suggest that way versus, you know, I want to go into a, a major toll road and I want to put in 10 billion rand on my, on my pension fund, rather go through, um, a consultant or a fund manager who's done it before. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Yes, thanks. I think it does partly. I think also just maybe then a, an additional consideration is um, if you do go through a fund uh, structure, um, you know, whether, especially if you're talking about a pension fund, we might have certain fixed liabilities, either in nominal or inflationary terms, or for a, for a life company, you know, whether you actually can look through to specific fixed uh, risks or, or fixed instruments uh, for aging purposes. I think so. sometimes a fund gives you a return uh, on a year-by-year on a, on a basis without necessarily giving you a look through to underlying risks uh, for, for aging purposes. I'm not sure if, if there are funds currently that, that allow you to do that. No, no well, not that I, I'm, I'm fully aware of. I mean, the, the most hedging or the most complex Hedging arrangements are usually at the project level, and uh, and lately, 
now even at equity level. So, I mean, I could get uh, some sort of swap arrangement now, which I couldn't do in the past at equity cash flow level, but uh, it, it hasn't emerged in any level of complexity beyond, beyond that, yeah. I think you're also making reference to the new, I think it's called the public, uh, the, what do you call it? It's a public-private uh, partnership. Sorry, uh, there's a new sort of national fund that's been proposed, uh, which does exactly that, which will allow a lot of the smaller funds to sort of group together in order to invest into certain larger projects as well. That's I've heard in the pipeline. All right, um, other questions at this stage? Are there any questions from Cape Town? I'm not sure if they have a mic down there. Supriya, we Okay. Yummy. Yeah, go ahead. I would just like to ask a question regarding the renewable energy uh, infrastructure specifically, and also on the valuation of that. Um, I, I see that as a potential place where actuaries can add value, and I would just like to ask regarding the, the current models, um, uh, with the first few biddings of the pro program, were there any, or are there any problems that you already can foresee uh, regarding the valuation of these projects uh, post-construction even? Um, you know, especially with the first ones, the problem was, in, was the other way. Not that the assets were necessarily overvalued, but what you're finding is that, um, I mean, there's been some major uh, uh, things that went wrong with one or two. But in general, what you find is that a lot of us understated the expected cash flows out of round one and round two assets. And uh, just, you know, and the tariffs were incredibly obscene as well. I I say the tariffs were, were higher than they were for subsequent <laughs> rounds. So there's a lot of margin for error, but I, I haven't found um, valuations that went the other way, where people, especially in the earlier rounds, in the subsequent rounds, definitely. Um, but in the earlier rounds where somebody o uh, overstated valuation and the as-is carrying valuations are materially lower than um, what was predicted. Uh, those, those first round ones in particular, just by way of example, the differential between the expected equity return and the debt return was in excess of 100%. As it went down, as you went to subsequent, so put differently, um, you would get maybe a cost of debt all in 12, 13%, and uh, the equity was, was a lot. And uh, it normalized as the rounds went on, making a lot more people make mistakes in subsequent rounds. And where I've seen valuations, um, uh, not to mention names, but where people have made mistakes is in the secondary round um, asset purchases. And you know, the nature of these assets, if you're looking at it from a fund perspective, it's not like normal private equity or whatever where you can trade out of a bad valuation theoretically. So I can buy wrong and maybe um, outperform over the long run, you know. So here, if you get it wrong, 
um, because you've got capped upside and an infinite um, amount of downside scenarios, um, you, you, you know, there's a scenario where you don't trade out of a wrong valuation, definitely. So I've seen, definitely seen one or two guys get the valuations wrong in the secondary. But then it just became a, you know, a lot of money started entering, um, maybe less due diligences, etc. I don't know. Okay. Any other questions? Good. Cape Town or Jovic. Okay. I think uh, so. As I mentioned before, we had uh, an, another speaker that was meant to be in the session. So unfortunately, he couldn't make it. Um, so we might just be a bit lean on time as well. So if there are no other questions, I mean, I'll just close off with a couple of questions from my side. And then uh, we will effectively wrap things up. And um, the speakers should be available as well if you want to speak to them directly outside as well. So from your side, from each of you, I mean, are there any sort of closing comments on just the general sort of infrastructure investment landscape that you'd like to make? Uh, any strong points that you feel about? Yeah, that's another question. Oh, I see. I didn't see the hand. Okay. <laughs> Before we get to that, yeah. Thanks. Um, my, my question really is a follow-on to the point you just made, where infrastructure is typically a low-margin, long-life asset. So apart from, say, material mispricings at contracting stage, what is the appeal um, for a capped upside return profile, um, apart from sort of a moral obligation to invest for the future? Um, like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you've got a correspondingly lower, arguably lower risk profile. So, you know, this thing, ultimately, there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of words attached to it, but within the South African space, most infra space, your counterparty is a sovereign. And it's not an implied um, guarantee, it's, it's an out-and-out explicit uh, guarantee. So it's, it's ESCOM and then the sovereign. So if ESCOM does what it, uh, some people say it will do, Treasury is compelled to stay in. I mean, there's some risk there if you sort of take it to a more technical level is that you've got um, in the implementation and the, in some of the agreements, the PPA, so the 20-year the, the offtake that they take, Maybe if you had to ask me where there's a disproportionate risk-reward relationship, it's that in some of the PPAs, the earlier ones particularly, you've got a force majeure clause that is at dissonance with the force majeure at, say, the project-level agreements. And why that's, uh, that might have implications is that simply ESCOM has a wider set of events upon which it can, um, you know, enforce force majeure, you know, like uh, we don't have money, we don't, and the corresponding force majeure for, say, debt and equity is a lot narrower, so there's some leakage there, um, you know, but these, I mean, this is the South African state underwriting these things in, in the most explicit way 
uh, that one can imagine, essentially. And that's why the pricing theoretically should track um, other sort of it's bond. I mean, there's obviously a risk premium to, to if you compare them to bonds, but it should correlate by, by and large. And, and now it does. Before it didn't, yeah. If you got... No, I think that covers it. Okay. That covers it. Sorry, I don't mean to hog a mic. But <laughs> I think it's a bit unfair to characterize infrastructure as low margin and boring. I think that what you're responding to is probably infrastructure in the public space. There's infrastructure that has got really good margins and is very attractive and there are a lot of benefits to it for people who are willing to obviously take the risk. Um, why, and I, yeah, especially on the patient fund, maybe you can give me your views. Why is it that listed infrastructure just a struggle to catch on in South Africa? So overseas, obviously listed infrastructure is an asset class that's doing very well. Um, you can buy an index, you can buy a, you know, any, any kind of thing that you wanted in whichever sector of yeah. infrastructure. But in South Africa, it's just struggled. And you know what private equity did? the same issues that, you know, we've got a listed private equity fund, so you can go, not that I'm punching them, but Ethos, for instance, Ethos Capital is listed, so you can access private equity that, that way, especially for smaller funds that don't have the expertise or, you know, the time to invest in understanding that asset class. They can always just yeah. go and buy, buy it on the exchange. Yeah. And if infrastructure was listed in the same way, it would answer a lot of the questions that I guess I asked previously about, you know, what do small, smaller pension funds do? Yeah. What, what's your view on that? Yeah, so, so my point of view, um, to, to start, we, we are actually looking at one or two uh, listed infrastructure plays. Uh, they, they generally come in as, as specs, uh, but that's okay. But I think in, in general, uh, it's maybe an issue of the depth, like how many people are out there doing that. So if you're going to go into what you'd consider a new strategy for pension fund, you want to be able to, to look at it and say, this is option one, but I have two and three. So it's easy to compare uh, the, the basket and I, and I know I'm choosing the right one. So I would think that we need to just give it time. And if I take it back to example about PE, the issue I think is for a long time, people have been doing infrastructure as a, as a in, in a direct form. So you want an asset, you buy the asset. So why should I pay someone else to buy an asset that I could buy myself and incur fees and, 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 and a lot of other issues that I'd have to deal with? So I think that over time, people, when, when, you, care, when you know you can buy an asset directly, but actually you're trying to do so many deals that sometimes maybe it's easier to just give uh, money to, to a guy or three or four other guys and have them help you do those deals. I think we're probably going to see a shift into into the listed space but most importantly it's uh it's 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 an issue of education i think we take it for granted sometimes that we're investments people or we're educated people so we all know what's going on out there but it's not always the case so every time i take a, a new idea to the investment committee I, I always need to think about who am i talking to uh what is their background do they understand what's going on here so it probably helps to in between maybe investment committees, just spend time with the people um, educating, maybe. Uh, I, I think over time, as, as more and more people understand that 
you can get access uh, uh, on a listed basis via versus direct. Uh, we, we should see more flows into that uh, area. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the next frontier. So for guys like myself, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an inevitable thing. And I think maybe the uh, a suitable proxy is the kind of almost decade-long debate that the property industry had before they formalized the REIT structure. You know? And it has to go that way for a variety of reasons is that you, you can't speak of formalizing this thing as an asset class if you're not in the listed uh, sector. Um, and there's some structural reasons. So there's a bunch of us who uh, cultivated portfolios and we kind of bobbed, you know, maybe around... Uh, a billion and a half here, a billion there, 800 million there, and it's ripe for consolidation. And what typically happens then is that a lot of people are also in the market trying to raise both money and assets, and the, probably the longer-term easier way is to just isolate that one variable and make some sort of permanent capital um, structure, which is, which is what theoretically a listing gives you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it has to work a lot with the CISA, getting a CISA as well um, to refresh some of its own nomenclature around around this. And, and that work, I know, has, has been done. Uh, but I, I think that's really the next frontier, if we're speaking about scale. So what we're currently doing here, you know, you go there, you raise money, you buy assets, you, you get to some scale but certainly not the kind of scale I think a formalized uh, foray into the capital markets will give you. It's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, just a question, please, for Colofele and perhaps both of you. Just I see uh, the construction industry, construction companies, as being a type of a proxy for an infrastructure investment. And when I look at what's happening, for example, Avenge having big problems with that bridge in the Eastern Cape, mm. Group 5 virtually going under, a couple of the other construction companies, why do you think infrastructure should give a much better or a better return mm. than the construction companies who are behind these developments mm. are giving? So I would actually say that they aren't a useful proxy and for a variety of reasons. So traditionally, construction companies didn't, believe it or not, drive a hard project finance funding model. You know? So it was a very uncompetitive environment where they could literally sit around the table and apportion projects. And for about 15 years, they traded off um, state inefficiencies. I mean, if I spoke to, if I said that to one of the CEOs, they might say no. But that's the reality. They literally trade off state uh, inefficiencies. So invoice, and then if you track the margins, bulk of the margins are from overruns. You know, uh, and that's not a business case. So I think what's happening now was inevitable. As soon as the cycle changed, and it did, especially after 2010, um, it was always inevitable that the construction companies were going to be where they are now. And it's a problem in their business model. So whereas on our side, we do have a 
very risk apportioning funding model. They've never had that, and it's been balance sheet risk. So what the discipline that the likes of, say, uh, Namecheck Group 5 have had with the IPP is to have this sort of project finance model where they cash collateralize guys like us in our, in our position. And even if a Group 5 or a Basel is falling over, it has no systemic risk like it does with Kusile or whatever. You know? I think there's a very instruct, instructive lesson in how these things have been funded uh, that can be applied elsewhere, definitely. Okay, any other questions? Seems like it's the same uh, sort of people that asked the, do the question asking. Question from Cape So, question from a pension fund point of view, and that is, how big is your team that looks after your infrastructure investments? And if you had to infer, say, a management fee on the you know, size of your assets invested in infrastructure, um, can you tell us sort of what that management fee would be in, say, basis points? And how does that compare to other asset classes that you invest in? And I suppose part of that w would be to understand, you know, what is the, the extra governance um, that you have to apply to these uh, direct investments and how involved do you get? Do you sit on the boards? Do you sit on the management committees? Um, what's your level of involvement in those assets? Okay, so those are a few questions. Um, so, so I'll start by, so we don't have, um, we don't have an infrastructure team per se. We have, we have listed and unlisted. So on the, on the listed side, I, I have guys who would, would look at companies, as you said, like, like uh, Group 5 and the like. Uh, this, internally, there's a team of four in the, in the core equity team. Um, and on the unlisted, we have three people who do its private equity, developmental impact, and real assets. Uh, and then I'd be the fourth person, I suppose. Um, what was your other question? Fees, right? The, the, so the the fees for on the unlisted side generally tend to be uh, about the same as as normal normal PE. Uh, uh, but as I said earlier, everything is a negotiation, so it's it's generally based on how much how much work we think needs to be done, um, how good they are. Obviously, if if you deliver good results, you can charge higher fees than the average. Um, do we get involved? Yes, 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 we get involved. If we buy, so if we do a direct deal, so let's say in the, in the PE portfolio, um, we'd probably get a board seat depending on the, on the, on the, on the size of uh, equity holding. Um, we, we, would, we would probably sit on the investment committee sometimes. Uh, with funds, we generally sit on the advisory committee. Uh, but also that's 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 a function of how much you put into into the fund relative to 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 other investors uh did i miss something is that it okay thanks okay. question from cape town all right um okay. someone mentioned someone mentioned listing earlier so listing is obviously the ultimate form of intermediation um but one of the things that doesn't seem to define this this space is actually an intermediary and many smaller pension funds will only access investments through their intermediaries and therefore only get to see what the intermediary puts in front of them. 
Uh, I actually sit with a challenge where I want to invest money, not a massive amount, I suppose, but I want to invest money, well, and actually I can't, find an I can't find an intermediary to assist me. So I'm just curious how, you know, how the, 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 the corporate intermediaries think about this space and how they begin to build some muscle, which, like I said, is, is on some level is almost like a mini listing format where you begin to aggregate funds to help find projects. Your thoughts on that? Are you talking about you as a as an individual or as an institution? No, I'm, I'm an institution. I chair an IC. But the, the corporate advisors out there, you know, I say I'd, I'd like to see some infrastructure projects. I'd like to see some social impact projects, and they look at me with fairly blank faces. I, I, and I don't think it's just my advisor. I think I don't think there is a, a, a gatekeepers in that space. Yeah, I must. I must get your name. <laughs> Maybe uh, after this. But uh, if by intermediaries, do you mean like Rescura and and the likes, or just to be clear, like asset consultants, or I'm not sure. Um, okay, anyway, assuming um, it's maybe... Yes, I mean, as, as a consultant. All right, okay. So, yeah, I think they, they've definitely um, invested a lot of time and energy over the last couple of years in understanding and upskilling themselves. Um, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't always there in the beginning. So the, I think any of the big name ones would have a, a sense of what the... Um, fund management space looks like at least who the players are, um, and it's so small that you know they should be able to tell. I think relatively quickly, and I know that um, they've changed names now. But Towers, uh, I don't know what it's called, but they started publishing quite a lot of uh, annual reports around um, infrastructures in particular. I mean, it's global, but it does have a South African flavor as well to it. And, you know, building up that data networks as well. So, um, but I, I think I would agree with you by saying that the approach is still a lot of look-see as opposed to being formalized, formalized, you know, if I compare it to other asset classes. All right. Um, I'll take a last round of questions, if there are any. Cape Town as well. I think we spoke broadly about infrastructure investments, and we did touch on debt versus equity, but um, in the case of, uh, let's say, ESCO Pension Fund, for example, do you have a lot more exposure, uh, I mean, just in terms of counter counterparties rather than size necessarily, but on, on infrastructure equity or, or debt? Because I think also, you know, I think the, the comments were made earlier about the Jacob and, and the risks of, you know, with, with capped upside and all those things, a lot of that might apply to the equity side of, of the infrastructure investment. On the debt side, you know, within the way that some of these infrastructure projects are financed, you know, there are a lot of protections for debt holders and, and, and the risk return profile might be quite different. So as the... As ESCOM Pension and Provident Fund, we, we, we have space for both. We, we think both are useful, but as it stands, we've done mostly equity, actually entirely equity, but we're looking to, uh, to, to, to do the, the fixed income side of things as well, but we need to get a few things in place before we can do that. 
but we 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 have no issues against either it it would probably still be mostly equity because of the 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 type of uh profile of cash flows that we're looking for so but over time uh, I, I can't give you a timeline but over time we, we're going to move into that space we just need to get a few things in place before that happens all right okay I think uh, we're almost at the stage of uh, wrapping up, so I'd like to just uh, get one or two closing comments from each of you just around the general sort of theme of uh, the infra local infrastructure, institutional infrastructure investment space, uh, starting with, uh, I suppose, Pacho. Um Okay, sure. Um, so my view is, is that in, in general it's... Um, it's it's a fairly misunderstood um, asset class. I think, um, especially if you look on the on the unlisted side, in general, people here unlisted and they 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 think lack of transparency. Um, we don't understand what's going on, uh, corruption, and and and. But actually, if you look at the, the the history of the asset class and what what it's been able to to deliver over. Over the last decade or so, it's 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 done quite well, and it helps it helps a lot with um, when matching your your liability profiles, diversification, um, uh, and it also does a lot of good if you think about it. Because if we're looking at renewable energy, for example, electricity and toll roads and bridges, uh, water infrastructure, that's 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 a lot of good things. So in addition to uh, good returns for your pension as you 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 helping develop the country, which 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 can only be a good thing. So, I I, I would suggest that uh, we we spend a bit more time educating ourselves and educating those around us, investment committees, boards, and and and, and people like that, and 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 make them understand that if done correctly, this is uh, an asset class that could go a long way to 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 helping the pension funds industry. Hundred percent. Yeah, I, I think it's a great asset class, and uh, there's a lot of what uh, Patti said. There's a lot of uh, education that we can also extract internationally, where they do have the data sets um, spanning 20 plus years in places like Canada, Australia, and the US uh, to a lesser degree. And it has real life benefits, you know, both from a reducing, we think, the overall risk of a portfolio and incrementally increasing returns um, within at least the broad so-called fixed income universe. Uh, uh, a lot of the assets we look at are not low return as, as, uh, as sort of the perception is. I mean, we're looking at stuff that's 18% IRR, I mean, that's not obviously as high as 30% I might get in normal PE, but obviously a very different risk profile, you know. And, uh, I, I, you know, all this talk around wanting to reverse the tide around broadly IPPs or PPPs even, you know, the genies out the bottle, you know, where the sovereign has a funding requirement, uh, guys like myself and yourselves broadly, Will have, a, will have a role, you know, in filling that gap. So I think the asset class will emerge, formalize, and uh, become standard feature, I think, in asset allocation discussions. Yeah. yeah, I agree with both of those points. And also talking to the education points, I think one of the, the, the aims really of this forum 
even though it's considered one of the wider fields, is just to sort of broadly make this topic, uh, investment into asset classes like infrastructure, more mainstream, because I, I mean, I personally strongly believe that a lot of actuarial skills uh, can play a significant role in doing that. A lot of the decision makers, whether directly or indirectly, are people that are either in the profession directly or linked to the profession. So spreading the message and educating people within the profession is really one of the aims of, of, of the forum in itself. So I think with that, I will uh, wrap up the session effectively. I think we've, we've covered enough questions and I'd like to thank both of our speakers for coming. And I'd like to thank you uh, as well, both in Cape Town and in Joburg for coming. I hope you found the discussion, it's, it's definitely something different from your usual sort of healthcare or life insurance uh, sessional, but I hope you found it quite informative and refreshing. I think this is a topic that's not necessarily about to disappear anytime soon. As, as, as I mean, I've mentioned multiple times, the entire sort of investment landscape globally is changing and the need for diversification as well as looking at other sources of return, as well as giving sort of more uh, an ESG sort of backed uh, sort of theme towards investing is something that's gonna be growing uh, significantly over the, the coming years. So I think, uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot more to discuss, but within the format of a session, I think we've, we've covered enough sort of points at a high level. One thing I do also want to mention is that we will be hosting the first uh, alternative investment seminar towards the end of August, beginning of September, where we'll effectively host a half to full day event covering all asset classes. And we'll cover a lot of these issues in a lot more depth, as well as invite uh, broader members of the investment society and industry to come and speak, as well as thought leaders in the space. So that's something to, to look out for. So with that, I'd like to wrap this up and I thank you all for, for coming and I hope you, you enjoyed it. Thanks.